0: Welcome to The Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access, access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. Before I get started, I want to let you know why we didn't have a show the week of December 12th. My mother passed away on Tuesday the 13th, and I flew out Monday in time to say goodbye. Uh, The connection to to China that I feel my understanding of China really owes a ton to her. And so I dedicate this show to the memory of Mary Guo, Liu Danli. I think she would have been really, really happy to to read this essay. I actually read part of it to her while she was still conscious. Uh, that's going to be the topic of today's discussion, and to meet its co-authors, both of whom I've had on the show multiple times in the past, and who are doubtless known to the listeners. The essay uh, that we're talking about today is in the forthcoming issue of Foreign Affairs and is available now online. It's called "The Taiwan Long Game: Why the Best Solution Is No Solution." It argues. I think very persuasively that quoting here, sometimes the best policy is to avoid bringing intractable challenges to a head and kick the can down the road instead. Don't know if the rhyme was deliberate, but it's a good good way of putting it. The essay's authors are Jude Blanchette and Ryan Hass, gentlemen I greatly esteem, and who's teaming up on this essay and in a joint podcast called Vying for Talent delights me. Uh, Jude Blanchett is Freeman Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, and is the author of China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong. Jude, great to see you, man. Thanks, Kaiser. It's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, Ryan Haas is Armacost Chair at the John L. Thornton Center at the Brookings Institute, Senior Advisor at the Scowcroft Group, and Senior Advisor at McLarty Associates. Ryan was a Foreign Service Officer who became the China Director at the National Security Council during the second Obama administration. He's the author of the excellent book, Stronger, Adapting America's China Strategy in an Age of Competitive Interdependence. We featured him as keynote speaker at our next China conference. And uh, I've interviewed him about that book and many other things. Things. Welcome back, Ryan. Great to see you again.
1: Thanks for the opportunity, Kaiser.
0: So the opening paragraphs of this essay, I think, seem to make clear the motivation that you had in in, in writing it. You describe this growing chorus in the Pentagon and and on the hill. Uh, people who who seem to believe that a Chinese invasion of Taiwan will happen sooner rather than later and urging preparation for a war with China. Uh, This is something that I talked about uh, recently with Mike Mazar. And thanks, by the way, Jude, for for making that introduction. Uh, But this approach, as you say, supposes the US to be confronting a military problem with a military solution, whereas you believe instead that what we face is a strategic problem with a defense component. That distinction might be a little tricky and not obvious uh, to anyone, everyone listening or even reading the piece. So maybe we can unpack that a bit. Explain what it is that we mean when you say that we have a strategic problem with a military component rather than a military problem with a military solution.
2: Sure. Yeah, that's a, a important question that for Ryan and I gets to the, the heart of this conundrum, which is increasingly, I think certainly over the last year and a half, the discussion in DC, but in policy making circles in, in other parts around the world has really started to narrow down what what many think the problem is. And I think this especially exacerbated after Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which was seemed to telescope straight to the Taiwan Straits. And so I think the, the theory of the case is you have similarities between what Vladimir Putin did uh, to Ukraine with how Xi Jinping is talking about Taiwan. You have a uh, increasingly powerful military in the People's Liberation Army uh, under the leadership of the Communist Party, which has for a very long time denied the independence at, uh, of Taiwan and have made threats to using military force to ultimately compel Taiwan to uh, come to a political solution with with Beijing. And so I think to some extent reasonably many are saying, well, we've got to find a way to deter that that action. I I, I think I grant that. I don't know if Ryan does, but I think our argument is that that's about, you know, four percent of the issue if you look at this more holistically. Mm-hmm. And that fundamentally the challenge that the people of Taiwan and the United States face instead, I think, is a much broader diplomatic, economic, political Challenge one that certainly has a military component, but if we're just looking at this through a narrow military lens, we're, we're missing the heart of the challenge. And I think most consequentially, we're we're going to inevitably make this a military issue, where that's the exact thing that we want to avoid.
0: No, that's great. That that really helps to to um, to make that much more clear. Uh, obviously, your essay wins my approbation. You know, as somebody who's always banging on about the need for more cognitive empathy. Uh, when you write that to preserve peace, the United States must understand what drives Chinese anxiety. And then you go on and say and ensure that Chinese President Xi Jinping isn't backed into a corner and convince Beijing that unification belongs to a distant future. But that exact same passage, I think, is, is surely going to raise hackles. Uh, I think the moment certain eyes take in those words, um, a lot of people are going to draw immediate parallels, as you say, to Putin and Ukraine and to use those arguments to try and, and pin you, um, isn't this the same as those people all insisting that we take Putin's concerns over NATO expansion and Russian national security seriously? Wouldn't the policy you're advocating simply amount to you know, capitulation to PRC's threat of force? So how would you, Ryan, how would you respond to that criticism? I, I should note, though, that you do anticipate this line of attack and address it a bit in the foreign affairs piece. So, But I'm just curious just at the top here to maybe head off that, that line of attack.
1: Well, Kaiser, let's just uh, establish at the outset that neither Jude nor I are trying to argue that China is anything other than bloody minded in its determination to try to compel unification with Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, China is absolutely determined to do so. Uh, I think part of the argument that we're trying to advance is that uh, military options may not be the option of first resort uh, in China's efforts. What we've already seen is that China is engaged in a, a strategy of coercion without violence. This isn't a future hypothetical. This is an everyday reality today. Uh, where China is using an abundance of tools to try to wear down the psychological confidence of the people of Taiwan, that uh, that resistance is futile, that there is no path to peace uh, and prosperity that does not run through Beijing, and that the people of Taiwan's best hope is to is to sue for peace now rather than invite uh, pain later. that's That's what the people of Taiwan are facing. And if we become target locked on some future hypothetical invasion scenario, and begin to treat it as an inescapable inevitability. We could find ourselves sort of driving down a path that, that may not be necessary. And, and beyond that, we're not addressing the problem that the people of Taiwan are feeling today. And so uh, part of, I think, what, what Jude and I are trying to do is to try to encourage a bit of a mindset shift in Washington to, to understand that, yes, there is a real risk of future conflict. It's not an inevitability. Um, but it is a, a real risk that must be taken seriously. But even as we take that that risk seriously, we have to also contend with the everyday realities that uh, the people of Taiwan confront today. And unless we sort of rise to that challenge, then our own interests will be disadvantaged. Because ultimately, what, what we are talking about in this piece is how to protect America's interests. And what are America's topmost interests? It's preserving peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. And in order for us to, to sort of adhere to that North Star... We have to have a clear understanding of the nature of the challenge that that we and the people of Taiwan confront.
2: I also want to add that it is an inescapable reality that you will have to wrestle with what China is thinking about this. No matter how you come down on this issue, whether you're far more to the hawkish spectrum than I am, you still are going to have to try to wrestle with how Beijing is conceptualizing this, what's, you know, as best we can try to think through the the decision-making calculus that Xi Jinping is, is utilizing. And indeed, one of the most frustrating aspects of this discussion and debate is I notice there are those who say occasionally we just need to listen to what Xi Jinping says, right? And and they'll pull out a passage from a given, you know, translation of a Xi Jinping speech that lays out what they think is a, you know, is a is a very expansionist view of Chinese interests and intentions. That's fine. I, I think showing your math is good. Um, but I so I think we're all engaged in the game of trying to understand what what Chinese calculus is. I just would argue that we have to bring as much available data and input we can to making determinations about wh- what China thinks. And the final thing is we we ended up getting to this place with the Soviets in the Cold war right and in, and in fact, this was one of the most critical most important tools we had is an attempt to n- in a nuanced way to understand what the Soviets were thinking. That doesn't mean you countenance their actions. doesn't mean you agree with what they're trying to do. It's just understood to be a necessary tool in the toolkit to achieve your interests and and avoid uh, uh, unnecessary conflict.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing that's frustrating to me when I try to sell this idea of cognitive empathy. They seem to be unable to differentiate that from just plain old sympathy, which is absurd.
1: One of the things that we often hear is that China is investing so much in its military capabilities, and therefore that tells us that China is preparing for a, a future conflict with Taiwan. Uh, and I, I understand the logic of it. I just think that it breaks down under under interrogation. The, the World Bank estimate of, of China's military spending is that they spend around 1.7% of their GDP uh, on defense, somewhere in the ballpark of $200 billion. Now, they probably spend more than, than they report. So let's just say they spend one8 1.9%. That, if they were in NATO, that would be below the 2% minimum threshold of, of defense spending. Right. Uh, they are a rising power. Uh, rising powers spend money uh, on their national defense. China does have the largest surface Navy. It does have the largest standing army. It does have the largest missile force. So we don't take any of these these threats lightly. But they also, you know, have their own limitations. They have one overseas military base relative to eight hundred of ours uh, around the world. They have territorial disputes with five of their neighbors. Four of their neighbors have nuclear warheads. None of them want to be subordinate to China. And so, you know, I think that taking a broader picture helps sort of put into context a little bit of uh, the texture of what Jude and I are trying to put forward.
0: Right. That that military aggrandizement does not translate directly into an intention to attack Taiwan. The Expansion of the PRC's military capabilities uh, is one of the three factors that you cite that you say really changed the situation after three decades of relative stability. What you describe, and I think I would agree, is has been a successful policy. Though, so the second factor that you cite, I think, is also mostly uncontroversial—that China under Xi Jinping has gotten more assertive, including over Taiwan. I mean, some might quibble, but let's set that aside for now and look at it more closely in just a bit. But this third factor is bound to generate some controversy. You write, I'm going to quote here, the United States has abandoned any pretense of acting as a principled arbiter committed to preserving the status quo and allowing the two sides to come to their own peaceful settlement. Let's talk about that. And maybe we can begin with this idea that there was a status quo to begin with, uh, one worth preserving. I see eyes roll in some quarters whenever somebody suggests that they're even was a status quo to begin with, which I find to be baffling, but uh, it appears now to be an assertion that we have to defend. So what was this status quo that you were referring to?
2: That's a great question. Uh, If I may answer it in a somewhat roundabout way by first getting to an offhand comment you just made, which is uh, success in existing policy. And I think a threshold, or for me, at least a foundation has to be understanding that imperfect as it was, the uh, approach of the United States in managing this very vexing problem uh, since normalization through relatively recently has been, I think on almost every metric, successful. If, If what you're choosing for success is the United States, as Ryan said earlier, maintains broadly peace and stability in the region. And I think crucially that Taiwan is given the space to grow uh, as as a prosperous, resilient liberal democracy, which it is, you know, on almost every on every measure, inarguably. It, so let's just start with that. That um, you know, people have been kvetching about the limitations of strategic ambiguity since the Roman Empire, uh, <laughs> without I think recognizing how fundamentally successful it has been. Again, in an imperfect way, but but when measured against alternatives, in maintaining that. Um, status quo now get to your second point, which is is status quo the right word to use and i, I, I that 's not the hill I would die on for that specific to magic <laughs> incantations. What I would say we're thinking about when we state status quo is not a technical sense of f- freezing in you know freezing in motion events across the Taiwan Strait, which has never been the case. Um, it has always been true that u s one China policy has been adaptive. Because there's no sort of fixed set of actors and there's no sort of this is a constantly churning, moving, very complicated relationship that evolves dynamics within China, dynamics between China and Taiwan, dynamics within Taiwan, dynamics between Taiwan and China. And of course, add us into the mix. I can't do the math on how many different relationships that is. But it's a it's a whole complicated set of relationships that the United States, for its own part, has been consistently trying to manage to keep that imperfect balance in place, to where China does not invade, Taiwan is given the space to 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 grow, uh, and the United States' interests are protected uh, in the region. So, you want to call it an equilibrium, call it what you will. I think that's what we mean when we say something like a status quo.
0: I, I, I mentioned just now that you 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 talked about this sort of third factor, the the. Uh, abandonment of the pretense of of being a principled arbiter. I imagine that most people who defend current American policy would simply point to the second factor that you cite you know that you know she's China has gotten a whole lot more aggressive and say that this has been a sensible response to an uptick in in Chinese aggression and uh, to address this, I suppose we need to examine to what extent. I said we would do this earlier, and now we, we have to, um, China really has gotten more bell coast when it comes to Taiwan. Uh, you guys answer this in part by examining why Beijing hasn't already used force, us, which I think is a really sensible approach. But I also think that it's important here to right size what China has actually said and done. As Jude said, You know, we need to look at the sort of totality of, of of the statements and the actions. And I know, Jude, you've done pretty close reads of not only you know the white paper that came out shortly after Pelosi's visit, but also... Of you know the, the what some people were calling the work report the report at the 20th Party Congress, um and and so maybe I'll stay with you for a second here. Can we look at this question of how much change really has there been in China's posture, and then maybe look at the reasons you cite as to why? Maybe we can turn to Ryan for that. Uh, why China hasn't used force, even if it does enjoy a military advantage, arguably.
2: Yeah, that's a really important. Question in part because some of the documents you referenced, the the uh, white paper that came out in August, um, the last one, uh, you know, came out twenty years prior. We right. have things like the the last year's history resolution. The last one was nineteen eighty one. We have the um, the report that was issued at the twentieth Party Congress. We have Xi Jinping's speech marking the hundredth anniversary of the Communist Party. Uh, um, in addition to other speeches that Xi Jinping has made or documents issued, so we have a set of the most authoritative statements. That have come out of the Communist Party and come from Xi Jinping personally. And I think that's the body of that's the body of text that we're working with when we're trying to understand at least what China says. And I should just mention that um, I think some folks will, depending on how they're coming down at this, dismiss these statements as mere, you know, as mere politicking. I get that, and and some part of me agrees that when we look at statements that come out of any political entity. We need to understand that there are multiple audiences and multiple usages of those statements. But what I would say is especially, you know, things like the party Congress report, the history resolution, these are not designed for you. These are designed as messaging for the party state system to understand how the party views an issue, what the priorities are, and to give some degree of predictability about, here's how we're thinking about the issue. So what have they said on this? Xi Jinping has And broadly, very consistent to say that China's um, uh, preferred path to, to achieving reunification, in their words, is to use peaceful means. Now, we need to caveat that by China's view of peaceful means just means non-military means, but it right. it certainly includes economic coercion, you know, political warfare, election interference, the, the 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 exercises they did in response to Speaker Pelosi's trip, which is a part of China's sort of psychological warfare to try to bend and break the will of the Taiwan people. So this is not purely benign, but if we're just thinking about how are they have they run out of patience and are they now going to start thinking about uh, th- the previous un- unthinkable direct attacks uh, invasions china's statements in all of its authoritative documents are saying are per- we think time and momentum is on our side uh, it's a historic inevitability that we will get to reunification um, um, and, and we're going to try to use peaceful means again appropriately uh, contextualize that they're peaceful do do not mean benign what we would be looking for if we're starting to if we're looking for Xi Jinping starting to say, time is not on my side, these are these are small tweaks in the statements, but they would be very important. Consistently not referencing peaceful reunification. Instead of saying that um, secessionist elements on Taiwan remain a, a small minority, if we start to see them frame that the secessionist or bad elements on the island are now sort of a majority. So we would be looking for these shifts in verbiage that are more clear signals that Xi Jinping sees the the runway is ending, and that we would expect him to start taking more more drastic actions.
0: And we've simply not seen these.
2: No, shapes. and just final again, I, I think Ryan and I continually try to anticipate counter arguments on this. Uh, but I would say it's it's also you know we we shouldn't just look at what Xi Jinping says on Taiwan. Right. Um, this is a holistic view you have to bring to this of statements plus actions plus military preparations. You know, there's a whole complicated equation here. But an important element of this would be Xi Jinping's uh, words. And then final thought is, what some have pointed to, which is statements Xi Jinping has made about we can't pass this issue on from generation to generation or that we need to achieve complete reunification um, by 2049, I would say two things. Number one, those are very, in the in the first case of not passing this down generation to generation, Xi Jinping first said that in 2013, uh, again in, in, in 2019. It's not a very specific statement. Um, right. If I'm reading that as political language, I'm hearing him say, we, we, you know, we've been, we've, been, we've been snow plowing this ahead for a very long time. We've got to get serious about, you know, we, we, we can't just kick the can in perpetuity, right? Um, second one is, look, if any CEO came up and said they had a goal that they would achieve by 2049, you would know that that's, that's pure stall for time, right? It's not a serious timeline.
0: Right, right, right.
2: You know, it, it, is, a, it is a way, I think, for Xi Jinping to both signal conviction, Um, and seriousness without boxing himself in on too narrow of a timeline. As Ryan and I say in the piece, it's illogical. It's not very Xi Jinping-like, and it's not very strategic to give yourself a fixed firm deadline, which then removes removes your options. And I think it's clear that Xi Jinping is trying to have his cake and and eat it too by saying, look, I'm very serious about this, but we might potentially need 30 years to realize this.
0: Okay, you said that we would turn to Ryan and and talk about why, despite China enjoying, again, arguably, a military advantage, why it hasn't, you know, gone kinetic.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I will uh, take a a swing at that. But I also want to just pile on to what Jude was saying, because another theme that comes up in these conversations sometimes is reports that President Xi has instructed the PLA to be ready by 2027 uh, to Uh, use force against Taiwan. And I just want to make sure that we put that in proper context as well, because this is not uh, new or original. It's pretty common for for Chinese leaders to instruct their forces to be ready for future contingencies. Taiwan has been the PLA's top security priority for decades. Uh, So so this is not new. Um, But it's also important to note that it reflects an admission that the PLA is not ready today, uh, if Mm -hmm. they have until 2027 to, to get themselves ready. So I think that that's uh, important to keep in context as well, because this often gets woven into discussions about, uh, you know, signals of inevitability of future conflict. Uh, On your question, Kaiser, about why the Chinese have not used force yet, even though they could have, uh, I think it, it reflects the fact that the Chinese understand that they face indivisible vulnerabilities. Uh, they require imports of oil. They require imports of food to feed their people. They require imports of of semiconductors and other uh, advanced uh, machinery in order to advance their economy. Uh, They also, I think, recognize that if there ever was a need for conflict, it would be a pretty pyrrhic victory. Uh, Mm -hmm. Taiwan's economy would be in tatters. Their export-driven economy would be crushed. Uh, Their goals of national rejuvenation would be set back dramatically. Whoever survived in Taiwan would be... Violently opposed to being occupied. And they would probably find themselves in direct conflict with the United States, Japan, and possibly others. And so I think where this leaves the Chinese is that. They are, they're clearly investing significantly to purchase the future option of use of force, um, but it isn't their, their first tool or tool of first resort. I think that they would uh, use force if they felt like they could do so on the cheap. In other words, if they would face no resistance from us or minimal resistance from Taiwan, or if they felt like they were backed in the corner and had no other alternative or recourse. And that even, even though uh, they may suffer catastrophic damage, that, that this was something that absolutely had to be done.
0: A lot of things come to mind uh, from your response just now. Uh, One, I should point out that actually, Jude, you and Gerard DePipo actually authored a CSIS report uh, that looks at the likely costs of a military intervention and and argues, and I think that you and Ryan used the same phrase, or Ryan just did, they call it a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, Any victory, quote unquote, would be at best Pyrrhic. I'll link to that report on the podcast page and in the, the transcript Something else that came up earlier, we talked about time, whether time is on uh, Xi Jinping's side. And again, I mean, I was I was interested to see that in in the report, he actually used the phrase "is always on our side." But but in fact, I think that the they recognize increasingly that time is is not on their side. I mean, look, they they are not blind to Taiwanese public opinion this is growing, Taiwanese identity quite. Not just separate from, but opposed to a Chinese identity, a broad rejection of the one country, two systems formulation, especially after the imposition of the national security law in in Hong Kong, just mounting frustration over the way that that Taiwan has been excluded from and marginalized, you know, by, in these uh, international organizations, the World Health Organization, um, in in the beginning stages of a, a global pandemic. I mean, I've, all of this. Uh, so anyway, you, you write something to the effect that when it comes to the appeal of one country, two systems in Taiwan, the Communist Party is pretty clear that it's there's no appeal at all. It's zilch. Uh, they've said publicly that time is on our side, as we've, we've talked about, but they know that it's not. And nor is it a belief in Taiwan you know, or in Washington. What are the implications of this, though? If nobody thinks that time is on our side, doesn't that seem like you could cobble together an argument that some kind of, of, of action is is inevitable? What, how would you respond to that?
2: I think this gets to the heart of the argument we're making, or at least the, the proximate cause for it, is looking around uh, at the discussion in DC, at uh, uh, looking at the discussion, the informal discussion, discussion we're having on Track 2s. Um, and looking at Beijing's recent actions and then, um, looking at discussion in, in Taipei, I think this is the, the heart of it is you now have all three primary actors who feel a sense of, of urgency, um, who feel a sense that time is not on their side, um, And what we need to find a way to do is to get this back in a position where folks are are thinking about this as a longer term challenge to manage rather than, as you say, some rapidly boiling pot, which is about to sort of spill over. I think all three actors have their own specific reasons for why they're feeling the sense of urgency. I think there is a, a, a share of blame to go around in a narrow political sense, although you know, we start out in the, or we say somewhere in the piece that, you know, ultimately, as, as Ryan said at the outset of this conversation, I think Beijing is the bad actor here. Fundamentally, it's the one that is looking to annex a peaceful democracy. But I just think that gets you to the two yard line. You know, I, I, I think a sense that we're in the moral right, which we are, I just don't think gets us that far. Cause then you're left to try to manage this profound, profound challenge. Mm. Um, You know, I think Beijing, as you say, although the official documents are saying time and momentum are on our side, that's a political statement. It's also a statement that is saying Xi Jinping's not itching to take, you know, catastrophic kinetic action. But if you look more carefully at China's actions, it's clear, as you say, they're looking at Um, a growing, uh, an increasingly close relationship between the United States and Taiwan, especially on the security and defense front. They're looking at, you know, growing security architecture and discussions in the Indo-Pacific involving Japan, involving Australia. Beijing has, I think, a complete inability to do self-introspection about how their own actions and statements are creating and and stiffening the headwinds that, that they then, you know, uh, shorten their their time horizon. If if you fire short range ballistic missiles over Taiwan, I hate to say that that is going to <laughs> that is going to have an effect in the conversation in Taipei, but also in Tokyo, also in Seoul, also in Canberra, and 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 also in, in Brussels, in Berlin, and Ottawa, and and London. Yeah. Um, in the United States, I think it's clear as we were talking about a, a, a bit earlier, we've now artificially shortened our timeline by this. I think un, unscientific unanalytically sound view that Xi Jinping is, you know, potentially, you know, going to launch some sort of kinetic strike, you know, uh, this year, next year, in the, in the next couple of years. So that is adding a sense of urgency artificially to the discussion. I, and I think Putin's invasion of Ukraine, if you're following that line, Putin's invasion of Ukraine only um, adds a sense of urgency of we, we can't wait. And, and many people firmly believe that Xi Jinping has come to the conclusion that he needs to invade, and if you accept that basic mathematics, then of course your response would be: we need to throw everything at the kitchen sink now. And then, just final comment quickly, and then I'll shut up. Um, I think I think I think Taipei feels a sense its own sense of urgency. One is it understands that U.S. attention is often fickle, and mm. it understands there is a moment of this post Ukraine invasions to, to try to lock in some U.S. Support. It's a it's an unfortunate reality that right now Taiwan's you know primary security comes from its relationship with the United States, and and Taiwan has to manage that carefully. So I understand. Um, uh, we've pulled the rug out from Taiwan before, and so I completely understand why they're trying to you know go around and say you know Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow. But there is their own sense of of urgency. So you add this together and we just get this unfortunate situation where instead of, again, thinking a little bit more calmly about this, we're all sort of acting as if we got to come to a solution now.
0: So, Ryan, at the beginning of this conversation, we'd talk about how the Ukraine war was one of many of the the factors in in driving this kind of new sense of urgency. Uh, It's been close to 10 months now since February 24th. it's struck me for some time now. I've, I've never seen, I never seem to hear this out in public discourse that the Ukraine invasion by this point in time, I should think, would serve to dissuade Xi Jinping from making a move on Taiwan. I don't understand why we're not saying that. I mean, you think, you think that Beijing is looking at the economic costs of, of you know, of the potency, the sanctions of, you know, this kind of opprobrium the pariah status to which Russia has been relegated it would just be worse for for, for China um, you know they're looking at the, the the battlefield failures just just the duration of the fighting none of it has got to be making she think yeah uh, let's take our untested troops and and invade Taiwan finally am, am I missing something here I mean why why is that not part of the conversation?
1: Well, Kaiser, I think that uh, to your and Jude's point, we've predicted 10 out of the last 0 Chinese invasions of Taiwan. <laughs> uh it's a it's a habitual pattern of uh of American analysts. And we should have uh you know a fair a fair bit of introspection ourselves at, at why we keep on doing that. The the issue of Ukraine matters significantly. Uh I think it it does a couple of things for China. One, I do think that it induces a bit of sobriety uh about the fact that the Chinese, uh, despite their significant investments in military capabilities, can't have absolute assuredness of the outcome of any conflict in the Taiwan Strait. A war in the Taiwan Strait would be uh, you know, orders of magnitude more complicated than any uh, invasion by Russia of Ukraine. It would be significantly harder. The, the Taiwan Strait itself, just geographically, is three times wider than the English Channel, which we uh, during World War II, of course, during D-Day, uh, you know, spent a, an extraordinary amount of time planning for because it was such a complex uh, strategic challenge. Right. But Ukraine also has given the Chinese a free preview of the playbook that would be used against them in the event of of conflict. Maybe not military, but but certainly economic. And I, I think that the Chinese are are taking exquisite notes, uh, learning in in fine detail. Uh, what vulnerabilities in Russia's system have been exploited, how they've been exploited, and, and what weaknesses they themselves may have. And so what I think the, the real focus in, in Beijing is watching uh, and reflecting upon events in Ukraine is how much further China needs to go to harden its own economy uh, if it ever finds itself in a situation where it is on the, 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 side, the end that Russia is on now uh, in, in responding to international pressure.
0: But in recent months, it's only been shown more and more examples of how vulnerable it actually is to things that haven't been directed, you know, at 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 Russia. It has its own unique set of vulnerabilities that have been on conspicuous display recently. Jude, you wanted to add something?
2: I, I just to maybe take a slightly um, modulated uh, tack. I am also weary of us making determinations one way or the other what what Xi Jinping is thinking about this. I mean, I I've been in enough you know, and I know Ryan has as well enough of these sort of meetings of, you know, lessons learned for Beijing. And I find that, you know, right now, we don't know, right? We don't know. We have some visible outputs, which are kind of articles that, you know, Chinese scholars, PLA scholars are, are writing that give some indication of, of how they're processing events. Um, but states are not perfect lesson learning machines our foreign policy would be drastically different over the course of its history. If it was constantly and accurately refining itself, you know, to the blunt realities of physics. (laughs) And, and, and I think we demonstrate, you know, the United States that we're, we're capable of consistently making mistakes. Your, your podcast with Mike Mazar is a great example of a lot of smart people can come to the absolute wrong conclusion about what the relative costs and benefits are. So I would just say, I think this is one, um, uh, you know, where we want to be uh, incredibly cautious about um, uh, coming to conclusion. It's the only time I'll ever quote Wittgenstein, but in the last line of his, uh, uh, you know, tractatus, he said, where if, one cannot, <laughs> where if one cannot speak, there if one must remain silent. Um, I, I think we want to be looking. I think this is another really important thing to, um, I don't think we would just see Xi Jinping, you know, cock off, drink a shot of whiskey and YOLO. Um, a, a, on Taiwan without first seeing him act erratically in lots of other policy areas, so we probably want to really be you know assessing Xi Jinping as a leader uh, across the f- entire spectrum of policy. We want to go into this carefully so I guess i 'm saying i I, th- I think you guys are probably right, but I could have said the same thing about you know why Putin would not invade Ukraine because it was clear you know given he had you know, given everyone was expecting this because it had been telegraphed that the costs were going to be significant, he was going to isolate Russia, and yet he did it anyway. So yeah. I think we need to, it, it, you know, be somewhat agnostic on this.
0: Point point taken. So you guys write in your essay that fixating on invasion scenarios has us developing solutions to the wrong near term threats that were, you know, were kind of path dependent. You know, um, the guy with the, uh, a only a hammer in his toolbox, right? Or the the drunk looking for the keys under the streetlight, because that's where the light is. Anyway, what scenarios uh, are we planning around right now? And why aren't those the ones we should be planning for? Um, I guess maybe that's a a, a better way, more direct way to ask is, what scenarios should we be planning for?
2: I'll... You know, certainly some amount of our bandwidth needs to be thinking about a possible Chinese invasion. So I don't think we're arguing that that drops to zero. I think what we're we're saying is the proportion needs to be slightly different. So, you know, first of all, there's a scenario which is almost certainly coming up, which is uh, a future Speaker of the House. Maybe it's Kevin McCarthy, maybe it isn't, travels to, to, to Taiwan sometime next year. And predictably, Beijing is going to respond pretty viciously and in a way that's going to try to undermine you know uh, Taiwan's resiliency and resolve try to undermine U.S. credibility as a security partner. We're also dealing with a near constant state of Chinese economic and political coercion against Taiwan. So mm-hmm. we just, I, you know, if anyone who who likes Cavill and whiskey, you know, will know that Beijing just a few days ago, you know, set another you know informal hard ban on on the importation of of Taiwan whiskey and and uh, and wine.
0: It's more for the rest of us.
2: Yeah, I guess so. So we've got a set of more, more you know, a, a pressing set of, of coercive activities that China is consistently uh, leveraging against Taiwan to try to, um, you know, undermine Taiwan's uh, resolve. We've got an election coming in Taiwan in January 2024. I, I, I'm certain we can expect a massive ramp up of of interference by Beijing trying to delegitimize the integrity of 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 that election. Um, right. So we've got this host of scenarios that are going to happen right now. And then just a final one is, you know, the PLA is young and inexperienced, and they're, it, it's getting more sporty in and around the Taiwan Strait. We're getting into closer proximity with the PLA. Um, they do not uh, abide by the same code of conduct and rules as the United States does. They have very, you know, we've got very poor dialogue with China. So we have a known quantity of of the potential to have a unanticipated flare up. Um, which would even if again, even if we're in the right, still leaves us to try to clean up that clean up this mess so well, Ryan, surely this is these are things that we are planning around, are we?
1: i I'm confident that we are, but to perhaps put it another way, Kaiser, I think America's interests are served by a strong and confident Taiwan. Mm-hmm. I think Beijing's interests are advanced by a weak and insecure Taiwan. These are at odds with each other, and the more that we are. Hyping uh, Taiwan's inability to defend itself, or uh, you know, advertising the the latest war game in which we lost uh, in a in a cross strait contingency, the more we're really sort of doing a bit of Beijing's work for them. They want the people of Taiwan to feel insecure. They want the people of Taiwan to feel like they have no alternative other than than suing for peace. And so, what what does that mean? What should we be doing? I think we should be doing things that help make the people of Taiwan feel, feel secure and confident in their future, uh, diversifying trade flows, uh, ensuring that they are capable of acquiring the types of weapons that they feel that they need to, to protect themselves, helping encourage them and supporting them in stockpiling food, fuel, energy, medicine, uh, munitions, helping to strengthen public health coordination so that the people of Taiwan don't feel isolated and, and left apart from uh, you know the, the global network that is uh, fighting the beat back pandemics pooling resources to accelerate innovation so that Taiwan is a part of uh, the growth story around clean energy or AI or some of these other um, emerging technologies. The government in Taiwan uh, needs to provide for for the health, the safety, and the prosperity of its people without feeling like they have to turn to Beijing to to address those needs. The more that we're capable of, of supporting that, uh, the, the higher the likelihood that Taiwan will feel strong and confident about its future. This is why uh, talking about the inevitability of conflict is so problematic from my perspective. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, it, it runs counter to the underlying objective of, of our overall strategy towards Taiwan.
0: You guys, I think that it's really the crux of the argument. I mean, that you know we are, by focusing so singularly on the military dimension of this, we kind of crowd out uh, stuff that we, where we should be putting more bandwidth into the kind of everyday, persistent, Threats that Taiwan actually does face, the actual problems that we we could be addressing. Uh, so yeah, um, I think you've done a pretty good job of of, of cataloging what those threats are.
2: If I add just one point, I think part of this would also be about what the United States doesn't do or or only does when it must, and with great focus and with a sense of what outcome we're trying to achieve on this. So you know, there's there's a lot of times where it is necessary to to probably provoke Beijing. There are times when not taking a unnecessary provocation is 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 the more appropriate path and I'm not sure we've entirely as a holistic policy making and policy creating u s government have quite figured out. Um, when it's appropriate to poke and and when we want to withhold, and you know we have a divided government, so we there's we, it's not a dictatorship, so there's agency amongst individual politicians that china is not is not dealing with, so some of this an administration would have no control over, but I think having a better um overall conversation on what our broad strategic outcomes are. Uh, in regard to Taiwan that moves away from this idea of an invasion is the problem, the equation we're solving more, more towards what Ryan was saying of what is a consistent, calm, strategically sound and long-sighted set of policies and actions the United States can take to better position Taiwan to continue to grow and, and prosper. That I think would have downstream effects for for what the options are uh, that we should take where where we need to provoke and and where we might want to withhold provoking because it just gets in our own way and creates a more difficult situation for Taiwan
1: Jude in in the course of our conversations about this piece he helped focus me in on a point that I hadn't considered before which is that all of these substantive lines of effort that we've been discussing they really haven't aroused significant opposition from China. Hmm. What has aroused significant opposition and upticks in tension are highly symbolic events that puncture Beijing's narrative uh, uh, to their own people about uh, the fact that Taiwan is moving closer to, uh, to China. And those were Li Donghui's visit to his alma mater, Cornell, in 1995, and, and Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August of this year. So I think it's worth bearing in mind that there is a pretty high level of space available To really driving forward on a lot of these substantive issues, as long as we do it wisely, with an awareness of of uh, where where some of the tripwires or problematic areas may be.
0: That's an excellent point. One of the other things that you guys warn against, that you you suggest that we not do, is to cast the Taiwan problem as one of democracy versus authoritarianism. Uh, But at a kind of fundamental moral and emotional level, I think that maybe I'm I'm wrong. I mean, I, I dare say that's exactly how most Americans see this issue. What is wrong with that framing, and, and how does that disadvantage us?
1: Kaiser, I think that there are a couple of issues that come up in this context. Uh, the first, the the more that we frame this as a democracy versus autocracy challenge, uh, the more that it sort of validates Chinese worst assumptions about American intentions. In other words, that we would never countenance any resolution to cross-strait differences that were made between the leaders in Taiwan and, and leaders in the mainland because we are... Viewing Taiwan as a democratic asset to keep uh, in our account, uh, and that that will sort of accelerate us towards an outcome that our strategy is designed to prevent. Uh, the The second reason is that when when things when when these difficult dilemmas become uh, cast in very moral dimensions, it gets harder uh, for policymakers to act with, with nuance. It, it, it proscribes space, uh, and it, it sort of pushes policymakers towards absolutist black and white determinations. I don't think that that's typically healthy uh, for, for policy, and particularly uh, policy related to the perhaps arguably the world's most sensitive issue, uh, you know, Taiwan policy. And it, I think it's worth bearing in mind that the goal of America's Taiwan policy is not to solve the Taiwan problem. And, and it, it's to Prolong and elongate timelines so that eventually space is available for wise, cool-headed, farsighted statesmen in in Beijing and Taipei to find a resolution themselves. And uh, and that requires you know a bit of a mindset shift because we Americans you know we like to have uh, problems that are solvable, but Taiwan is just a, a problem without an American solution.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you guys are inevitably going to encounter a lot of anger from folks who are going to allege that you have. Denied once again, Taiwan and the Taiwanese people sufficient agency here—that their voices should be the only ones that ultimately matter—and that casting this in terms of U.S.-China relations uh, inevitably, you know, relegates Taiwan to a passive role. It becomes just a pawn this great power chess game. Uh, what would you guys say to to those critics?
2: I think it's extraordinarily important that you know, as the United States is thinking about policy on this issue, that of course we're always engaged with, with Taipei, that of course, we're always thinking about um, the distinct interests of the Taiwan people. And in fact, I, that one doesn't worry me as much, because I think this is one where the United States is incredibly attuned and engaged with, with Taiwan. What I would say, though, is from a just perspective of US interests, um, our job is not to do what Taiwan wants us to. And in fact, what's at stake here is an extraordinary expenditure of U.S. blood and treasure if this goes wrong. It is the basic math here that, you know, Taiwan's security in a large part comes from its relationship with the United States. And that means the United States has a lot of skin in the game. There's a lot at risk here. So while we always want to be considering the interests of of Taiwan, we also need to preserve our own space for the United States to to act in ways that frankly sometimes upset Taiwan and this and it has always been thus it has always been the case that as a part of our one china policy the United States has to at times step in and anger taipei to keep the peace more often than not we step in to anger beijing to keep the peace you know by having a credible military deterrent but we have consistently and over and over again needed to stress our own point of view and preferred set of actions precisely because we're trying to keep the peace in a situation that could go volatile uh, very quickly.
1: Kaiser, can I just add one, one additional thought on top of uh, Jude's points, which, which I entirely agree with, which is that what we're talking about is encouraging efforts to make Taiwan strong and confident about its future. The opposite is selling a narrative of inevitable conflict that puts the United States in tension with the efforts of Taiwan's leaders. President Tsai and, and her leadership team are trying to attract capital and talent to come to Taiwan. They're trying to encourage high-skilled recruitment into their armed forces. Banging the drums of war is in tension with the very objectives that the president herself in Taiwan uh, has articulated.
0: Okay, that's a very good point.
1: Let's, let's talk
0: finally about what form American support for Taiwan should take. I mean, it really at the heart of this, and we, we've been talking about what a lot of these things should be, but... At the heart of it, there is this adjustment or a clarification of just what the one China policy should mean under these new circumstances. Uh, you do make clear that it's just not good enough to repeat that our policy remains unchanged. Uh, as you as you guys correctly know, that rings hollow to anyone who's actually been watching, right? Nobody believes that our one China policy is, is intact uh, and has been, especially over the last, what, six or seven years. So what new for, how should we articulate what one china now means to the this administration and to the next
2: first i think it's important to disaggregate and i don't want to make a political comment here but to disaggregate some of the loose discourse on uh, what our taiwan policy is under trump versus biden i think it's just dramatically dramatically different under the biden administration you know under the trump administration not only did you just have just unprofessional looseness and you had a lot of people, frankly, I just don't think knew the basics of the issue. You also had this extreme moralizing, you know, Cold War component who who I did, frankly, think wanted to sort of weaponize the Taiwan issue to drive a much more aggressive, you know, US posture vis-a-vis uh, China. I just, that's not what we're dealing with under the Biden administration. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, first and foremost, the frustration I think many of us have is it's it is not entirely clear, to substantive matter, what this administration's policy on Taiwan is, and I think that comes from the top, where, you know, we've had a number of statements from President Biden that would seem to be, in some ways, a, an important shift in U.S. policy of moving from a, a Taiwan Relations Act understanding of what the U.S. Um, bottom lines are in terms of, you know, n- keeping that space for us to be flexible on how we would respond in the event that China did take a more drastic action to compel through military means this political settlement to something much more uh, declaratory that no matter what we were gonna stand with Taiwan. But it really wasn't clarified and codified that there was a policy shift. So it left a lot of us scratching our heads about what did he mean? It was almost like Pekingology, but with you know Biden administration <laughs> characteristics where it was like, did he mean it? Did he not mean it? And I have to say, you know, this may have been an attempt to to deter China by, you know, putting this in the mix that the United States would take action. But I have to say, frankly, in discussions with our closest allies and partners quietly, they were a little bit confused as to precisely what the new policy is. So I would say, you know, in terms of, you know, reassurance of China is a dirty word, but I would say in terms of reassurance, here's the one big thing we have to do, have a clear, consistent view on what our policy on Taiwan is, right? And, and let Beijing and Taiwan know that our policy remains exactly the same as it has in core substance, which is, as Ryan said, we're, we're, we're not here. It's The solution to this ultimately is up to two of you. We just demand that it is peaceful and it takes into account the will of the Taiwan people. Right Now, where I think Ryan and I do urge something proscriptive is, what I think the Biden administration is having to deal with is the feeling that that sort of old formula needs to have a refurbishment, that we can't just keep saying that we need to do a bit more because Beijing is, as we've mentioned earlier in the piece, it, this isn't the same PLA that we were dealing with 20 years ago. It has a much more, you know, area denial capability. It, it, you know, it has the, um, it is taking steps, which, you know, two years ago would have been unthinkable, namely firing missiles over Taiwan. And so I think there, what Ryan said, and I have said is instead of just pretending like our policy has remained unchanged we need to more clearly link and, and clarify to Beijing that if you take actions, we are going to respond proportionately to reestablish the equilibrium, right? Um, but I think that to do that requires A, credibility, B, consistency on your policy, and and, and then a set of expectations for Beijing of if you don't do this, great. Um, if you take these escalatory actions in these gray zone areas, we will be compelled to respond with countervailing actions, not because we're trying to solve the Taiwan issue uh, or, or, or rip Taiwan from any possible future political settlement, but because you have destabilized the equation.
0: But we want to maintain the balance. Right, 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 right. Okay. That's fantastic. Um, I I want to end this on maybe a, a slightly positive note. I've been talking with some Chinese diplomats and there's a sense among them and among some of my, you know, American interlocutors that there's, you know, that both sides are kind of ready to dial down the heat a bit. There is no real rapprochement Mountain works or anything like that, but at least the goal of getting a floor under the relationship seems to be a shared one. And at the same time, you know, I mean, we all saw after, after the Bali meeting uh, at the same time, the Biden administration initiatives that are already sort of in place are not slowing down at all or not showing any signs of letting up. Um, they have had some success in getting the Netherlands on board um, in, 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 um, limiting advanced chip-related equipment exports, adding a lot of Chinese companies today to BIS entity lists. Uh, so what, what's your own sense of this? I mean, if, if there are stirrings of a detente, what might be driving that and how far could it go?
1: Kaiser, I uh, I expect that in the next year things will likely stabilize a bit relative to previous years. If you think of the slope of the relationship, it's traveled a pretty sharply downward trajectory in recent years. I expect that that slope will probably flatten somewhat in the next year. I, I would be reluctant to suggest that, uh, that the relationship will improve, uh, because in order for the relationship to improve, we would either need to solve existing problems, agree to avoid future problems, or broaden uh, the aperture of the relationship to dilute uh, the sources of tension in it. And all three of those seem difficult in the current moment. But for each leader's own reasons, I think that they have an incentive to, to dial down the heat a bit uh, in, in the coming year. Now, of course, there could be uh, external events that could intrude upon those plans. Uh, so you know, we need to predict the future with a high degree of modesty. But left to their own devices, my expectation is that both leaders will look for ways to uh, inject a little bit more pragmatism uh, and, and balance into the relationship in the next year.
0: Fantastic. Let's hope that so. I want to give you guys a couple of minutes to plug your podcast, Vying for Talent. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that and uh, why you guys decided to collaborate on this?
2: Yeah. Thank, well, thanks for thanks for plugging it. Um, if we get one additional listener out of this, that will double our listenership. So we would we would welcome <laughs> it. Um, th- this emerged as a, a discussions Ryan and I were having about how, um, and maybe this is an ex- similar to the, the to the the foreign affairs essay of just trying to sort of shift the framing a little bit that all of the discussion in the United States, China relationship seemed to be this sort of race to the bottom of, uh, you know, how do we have a better, you know, industrial policy? You know, what's the next sort of set of arms sales or developments that can, you know, better position us? And I think it, it occurred to us that, first of all, that really any of these issues, when you get to the heart of them, technology development, you know, these are ultimately about which which political system can create the best ecosystem to extract, you know, to develop and nurture its talent, to bring in talent from uh, uh, overseas if it doesn't have sufficient indigenous capacity here. And so the focus of the podcast and a larger project is really trying to center in on this issue of human capital and competing for human capital. and And I think, what we sort of hope for is that also frames a bit of a race to the top dynamic, hmm. right? If you're thinking about who can better develop and nurture and facilitate, you know, their own human capital, what you're thinking about is how do we better educate our workforce? How do we address, you know, in China's case, you know, and anyone who's read, you know, Scott Rosell's work would know, China has a lot of work to do to be able to take, you know, this, these, uh, you know, rural areas and give them the same standard of living, that people in in you know wealthier you know uh, urban areas have, and and I think we in the United States should absolutely welcome China developing that that human capital base, both because that makes the world richer, and and on an ethical level, um you know that that is I think a, a sort of core ethical good. So we have no You're not going to sort of,
0: quote Kierkegaard. It. No, uh, uh,
2: no Wittgenstein by the way, Wittgenstein. Oh, I've, Wittgenstein. I've never okay. read Kierkegaard. Um, uh-huh. So anyway, it's just a modest attempt to, to think through some of these, you know, perhaps underappreciated elements of this, you know, very complicated bilateral relationship.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Give it a listen. It's, it's great. I'm start with the, the interview you guys did with Morris Chang. Uh, and that's, that's, you'll, you'll be hooked on that. And come on, man, you know, I'm a listener. There's, there's gotta be more of you out there. Um, I'm gonna skip the the usual plug I do, but you know the drill. If you want to support what we're, what we're doing, you know, subscribe to our damn newsletter. Uh, uh, and move on to recommendations. Recommendations is my favorite little segment of the show. So, uh, and I'm really keen to know what you guys have. So, uh, Ryan, why don't you start, and then Jude.
1: Well, Kaiser, if it's all right, I'm going to throw in two quick recommendations. One oh, serious, yeah, absolutely. One serious and one sentimental. The The serious one is uh, a piece recently by John Culver, former national intelligence officer for Asia, yeah, uh, who, John Culver. who wrote uh, for the Carnegie Endowment, how we would know when China is preparing to invade Taiwan. And he applies 35 years of uh, hard-nosed efforts of analyzing China to to break down what indicators and warnings would look like that would tell us that uh, that China is traveling on a path leading eventually to conflict. Uh, so I, I highly a great commend piece. that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I've I've passed that around to a hundred people already.
1: But. Well, it deserves it. And on the sentimental yeah. side, I'm going to uh, recommend White Christmas, the movie. It's a it's a movie I watched with my parents when I was young, and now that I'm the parent of four uh, kids, it's something that I enjoy doing with them this time of year as well.
0: All right, I need a good Christmas movie right now. Yeah, That's good. Why, I've not seen quite Christmas. Is that where Bing Crosby sings? It's
1: uh, it's Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney. You're uh-huh. you're just pulling for them to get together by the end. Okay, okay, fantastic. All right, Jude, what do you have for us?
2: I I've got um uh, uh one podcast, but two seasons. So I don't know if that counts as two recommendations. But I stumbled across um, a podcast called uh, "In the Dark," uh, which is American Public Media. Uh, season one is about. Um, uh, murder investigation of Jacob Wetterling, uh, which happened about 30 years ago and was unsolved until very recently. And it's, it's, um, utterly gripping, compelling, and it's an investigation of how broken our, our, uh, criminal justice system in, but especially local policing by sheriffs and how little scrutiny there is of their, uh, actions and season two build on that, which is about the, um, uh, wrongful conviction of uh, Curtis Flowers in Winona, Mississippi, and right. he was tried mm-hmm. six times for, um, for the same crime by one a district attorney. He was black; the district attorney was uh, white. And it it I don't want to spoil the ending, uh, but it is both seasons are totally engrossing and gripping on a human level. Season one, you know, as the father of a, of a child, just what the family went through, especially the agony of a broken judicial system under-resourced, but also isolated from, largely from scrutiny because local media is dead in the United States. So, so much of this activity isn't picked up unless a reporter starts a podcast and gets resourced. And then the second one is just the inequity built into the judicial system where you think there, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, And you see the machinations of what should be a fair, transparent judicial system when a spotlight is, is shown on it um it's it's horrifying and it should be a, a cause for national alarm so as we think about these massive geopolitical issues you know f- thousands of miles away um it just again emphasizes how much damn work we have to do here in the united states probably within a stone's throw of wherever any of us are listening to this podcast
0: yeah 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 all right for my recommendation look i mean Two of you, you, both both of you have been kind of lodestars for me in so many ways. Uh, uh, you guys are doing God's work out there. But if there's one, I mean, and there's so many other people who I could name check as well, but if there's one person who has just been especially heroic, especially just in the last couple of years, it's Jessica Chen Weiss, uh, who has been, I'm glad to say, a guest on the show on a couple of occasions. Ian Johnson, who is one of my absolute favorite writers, um, he's now at CFR, but still writing for The New Yorker, has just written a profile on Jessica in The New Yorker, and I highly recommend it. It's just, it's a great piece. It really captures her well, uh, what, what she's up against, and the, 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 the good sense that she's been making. So um, really just couldn't couldn't recommend it more highly. Great, great, great piece. And so uh, with that, I know we were a little bit over time, but thank you so much for, for, for taking the time to join me, Jude and Ryan.
1: Thanks, Kaiser. It was great to be on with you.
2: Thank you, Kaiser.
0: The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of The Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at TheChinaProj and be sure to check out all the shows in The Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Take care.